Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast, the podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between, with your host, Barry Kirby. Okay, for this podcast, welcome to everybody. Um, Brilliant that you've joined me for this second podcast where I'm going to be talking agile human factors with a particular view to doing it in the defense environment. And really what this is going to cover is what is human factors, what is agile human factors, and kind of what is the difference between the two, in my opinion. Why does it make a particular difference in the in the defense environment? And then we'll explore a bit more about what it's like to do human factors in the defense environment, um, what makes it different to doing standard human factors and ergonomics. And we'll talk a little bit about the phenomenon that is human factors and UX, user experience-based design. Fundamentally, they seem to be coming out as two separate things, but are we talking, is it just different shades of, of the same thing or is there a difference? So the, the reason for doing this talk is I've given this presentation now a, a couple of times uh, to different audiences. So I thought I'd try it on a, on a podcast perspective. So as, uh, as somebody who's been involved in the, in the defence industry for nearly 20 years, I've been involved in a wide variety of projects, small, medium and large. The majority of them in the defence industry, but also some outside as well. And I'm looking at projects that what we would, I guess I would call applied human factors, things, so we've actually been designing bits of kit, interfaces, that type of thing, but also a research project. So looking at leading edge and blue sky type um, research. And I've tried doing agile at, at varying levels of these projects and with varying levels of success. I think that that does bring me an awful lot of experience to be able to talk about certainly what my perceptions are and, and what I think the strengths and pitfalls. So just to start off with what agile actually is, really agile is a great buzzword at the moment. There's many projects out there that we talk about, many people who talk, uh, who say that they work in a in an agile manner, they they ad- adhere to agile techniques, they they throw around casually the words sprint and scrum and, and that type of thing. And some people do this really, really well. Some people, let's say, not do it quite so well, or at least necessarily understand the full complexity of what it means. But fundamentally, what for me, what Agile means, it's it's a different way of managing projects. It isn't suitable for every project we do we, we look on, but it is a, a different way of looking at things. It, it came out of largely software development. It's now being tried uh, with varying levels of, of success uh, at different types of projects. And... And fundamentally for me, whether you follow things like Scrum methodology, which is really the the true, I guess, golden pinnacle of process when it comes to Agile, or you could, so whether you take, or you go completely Scrum, or you just take the elements that work for you, fundamentally Agile is about, rather than taking a top-down, I guess, layered approach to a project where you'd do all of your planning to begin with, then you do all of your prototyping, then you do all of your implementation, and then you do all of your testing and then deliver your project. Really, Agile is more about cutting it up into, rather than top-down slices, it's cutting it up, in essence, like bits of cake, because uh, I like cake. Really making sure that that one chunk of work is completed before you then move on to the next. So rather than taking, taking everything slice by slice and doing everything really linear approach, it is really turned around and saying, right, I'm going to do this chunk of functionality first. I'm going to design it, I'm going to make sure it works, and I'm going to deliver it. And then you put it aside and say it's completed. 
Now that doesn't mean you necessarily completely put it put it aside, but for all intents and purposes, you've done that bit of job. You're now going to move on to the next chunk of work. But also, agile is all about collaboration and an empowerment. It really is about sitting there and allow getting everybody around the table, either metaphorical or in many cases the real table. So where you get your users, you get your, uh, your your project managers, you get the the developers around the table, and and everybody's empowered to to give it a go. But I'll come on to more about that in a second. So then let's get into a bit about human factors and UX. Is there a difference between human factors and and, and user experience design? The way I sort of look at this is they are the the two views, primarily the same process. In a workshop we did the other day, I ended up drawing a bit of a, a vase if you will. Fast type approach that go, you know, is wider at the top of the bottom and, and thinner in the middle. And really this is where I see the, the the views of HF and UX. So if you human factors is very much I think a bottom up approach. It's built on rock solid foundations of utilizing standards, um, making sure that that it's really that it's functional. It's it does exactly what it's meant to. It's really fit for purpose. And certainly from a defense perspective, we very much know who the user is. It's from a finite pool of people. And and really that's a testament to the origins of, of the implementation of human factors because it is really led by what you could class as safety critical industries, so defence, nuclear. And so I see that as very much at the bottom of this vase, if you can just um, imagine this vase. And, and really that, that gets you, and if you imagine the centre of the vase is actually the, the pinnacle of what we are trying to achieve. The top-down approach is very much looking at, you know, I want a product that isn't just functional, but actually delights and gives enjoyment, gets the user going back to wanting more and more. You're perhaps more commercially driven, so you're looking for repeat sales, and and perhaps your user is more unknown. You're, you're looking for a target market, you're looking for that type of thing. And so they'll go from that more top-down approach, looking, looking at that type of thing, but if they're looking at the top-down approach from the VARs, actually fundamentally you'll still end up in the pretty much the same space. You'll still you still want to engage with users, you still want to deliver a product that meets the requirements. You still want to engage with these type of approaches. But you just come to it from from a different view. It's a rather crude approach because there is a lot more nuance to it than that. But fundamentally I see they're kind of the same thing. And actually the real value and the real challenge going forward is how can we yoke the strengths of both the human factors side of approach, so that built-on best practice and, and that type of, and really bring together the UX side of things, which I think anybody would would agree that certainly from the defence perspective, we don't necessarily focus on user delight or uh, user enjoyment of what we're doing. It is more about can they operate it in a safe and functional manner. Maybe we do need to unleash the uh, the creative edge on what we do to actually deliver more effective solutions especially now we are pretty much going down a, a more cots or commercial off the shelf driven environment operators in the military and government have a lot more views on what technology is available because we carry a lot of it around in our pockets the ideal of a mobile phone and all the apps you can get on your mobile phone as well as everything else still really applies here so we know that when we talk about maybe a mapping tool that actually we can deliver a straight mapping tool that, that does the job, but we're going to be put up against the mapping tools that are available on the web. So your Google Maps, uh, uh, your Bing Maps, your Apple Mapping Technologies. And that's what you're, they're going to be looking for. That's what they're going to be asking for because they know that that's, that's the products that we're going to get to. So 
and they've been de developed more from a UX approach than an HF approach. We should be learning from that. So some people suggest that Agile is basically UX, and actually that's not true. As I've already said, Agile really is a project management methodology. It's a project development methodology. It's not necessarily doing things quicker because people say that it's agile, that we think it's going to produce speedier solutions. That might be true in one respect, but it's not necessarily, I wouldn't say that that was um, a definite benefit. There might be cases where actually an agile approach might even be longer, but you'd actually you get a better product for it. Um, that's not my experience, actually. Most of my agile projects do end up being shorter. So when we talk about agile and human factors, what is the difference for us? Because if you're a human factors practitioner, if you're somebody who's listened to this, who's, who's dealt with human factors quite a lot, you a lot of people say that the real difference with agile over normal software development or project development is the engagement of the user, is having the user around the table as you're um, as influencing your design, user-led design, uh, that type idea. It's having the, the, the customer and the client in the room. Now, actually, from a human factors perspective, we do that already. So what is the actual difference? Well, for me, it's actually about the, the other people who are in the room and how we empower them. So from a traditional human factors approach, we would have users in the room. From my perspective, I've done workshops with pilots in the room, with maritime personnel in the room, with soldiers, basically any military type user, myself and my team as HR practitioners. And we would work with these, uh, with the client, with the user representatives to come up with your solution. From an agile perspective, I get more people in the room. So yes, we still have users in the room. We still have HF practitioners in the room, but we also have software engineering representatives. We have the hardware engineering representatives. We have project management representatives. Basically, any other stakeholders that we think is a decision maker or could influence the decision, we get in the room. Now, obviously, this has to be managed because if you've got a, just because we want project recommendation in the room, so project stakeholders, doesn't mean you're getting every single engineer in the room. There's got to be a level of representation here because there's nothing to stop you devolving some of this as well to other smaller agile teams but what they all bring together is that they've got to have the idea of empowerment that everybody in the room has as an equal say and has the right to ask the stupid question and that is really very important a lot of workshops a lot of workshop facilitation does lend itself to making sure people feel happy and comfortable to uh, to to speak up but for this, it is really, really important to, certainly if you're the facilitator of the Agile sessions, then that you really do make sure that the people in the room are happy to speak up. Because that's where you get the power is you've got, if one person's thinking of, well, I don't understand that, don't understand what it, what it means, but they think it's a stupid question, then clearly probably somebody else is thinking it too. Or they might have just assumed that actually they understand it. So you need to basically make that happen. And having people like the project management team in the room as well is, I feel, really important because then they re really understand that if you're going to go be moving the, the project milestones around, you might bring some work into play that you didn't realise you want to have, a few more requirements that you've identified. Then, then they're in the room, they understand why they're not just being told secondhand and having to deal with it. And then if they're having to report up to other people, if you're part of a larger organisation, I've seen project management go from a state of being told what to do and having to and arguing with you about it to actually they're taking it straight away up to their line management to say, I've seen this, I know exactly why they're doing it, this needs to happen. And they're working, they're empowered, they they're, they're feel part of the team and, and to work, work with that. So it's about bringing 
all of the hats into the room and empowering everybody to do it. I've already spoken about how it's also, it's incremental build and test, so it's very, very modular in the way we do it. But you get a lot of momentum, and this is fantastic on on large and mega scale projects where the end goal might be years down the line. But doing an, an agile approach where you're taking things, an incremental bit, and you're, t- you're taking a chunk of it and you're developing that to co- pretty much completion, and then you're taking the next bit, developing that to completion, you're seeing the two bits work together. That's brilliant. So you're actually seeing real progress and you get some real momentum doing it. And that's not necessarily an approach that you would take on a, on a, on a traditional HF approach. Though there are, some of this, you, you could argue, isn't new. There are older techniques out there that have taken similar approaches, but now haven't necessarily had the tools to be able to develop prototyping and design in the, in the way that we can now. There is some discussion about whether you can actually apply this to hardware projects as well as you can to software projects, and I think there is a lot of work to be done there. But certainly, in my experience, if you uh, you won't necessarily get on a full agile or scrum approach, but if you can even pick up a few of the the, the few of the tools and the techniques that, that are used, then your project will be better for it. So for the rest of this podcast, we're going to be looking at what are people's receptiveness to agile human factors. We're going to talk a bit more about the the defense environment and really what does that what makes the defense environment special, um, and then some blockers and enablers to agile human factors. And then to finish off, I'll talk a, a, a little bit about some of my my toolkit and the various elements that I use. But I think it's also a good lesson to to dip back into history a little bit and think about where human factors has come from, uh, particularly from a forces perspective. person I want to talk about is a gentleman called Hyman G. Rickover. He was uh, an admiral in the U.S. Navy in 50s, 60s that sort of time. And he was generally known as the father of the nuclear navy. He was very, very instrumental in developing the the nuclear submarine capability that the Americans had. And when you consider that the UK special relationship is pretty much built on the on the nuclear capability that the USA and the UK have, he had a very, very strong influence on, on how that went. And he's been quoted as possibly, he may well go down in, in history as one of the Navy's most important officers. So around around this sort of time, human factors was really was starting to get a get a bit of pace, and in fact, the Chad Institute of Economics and Human Factors is 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 seventy years old this year. So so we are very much in in that space. A program for human factors was proposed for naval nuclear systems in in the USA around nineteen sixty nine. Admiral Rickover was was asked for for his opinion. He wrote a letter back. I won't read everything out of this, but what I will do is talk through elements of the of this that he came back. So this is the letter from Admiral G. Rickover. It says, it appears that the Human Factors Program, I'm holding my fingers up in that um, annoying um, speech mark thing that people do, is another fruitless attempt to get things done by systems, organisations and big words rather than by people. It contains the greatest quantity of nonsense I've ever seen assembled in one publication. Then he goes on to say, it's about as useful as teaching your grandmother how to suck an egg. Those who compile the instruction demonstrate a lack of knowledge as to how work in this real world is actually done. They assume that engineers who design naval equipments have no awareness that these are to be operated and repaired by average human beings. And for this reason, they need the guidance of human factors, engineers, with the elucidations such engineers will give. 
the simplest everyday problem will become incomprehensible. He goes on, the proposed directive cannot be undertaken by rational persons interested in getting the job done. It cannot be accomplished. It will add another monstrosity to our already vast administrative burden. It will increase the cost of shipbuilding. It will make us a laughing stock. I recommend that the Human Factors Programme be forgotten as fast as possible. There will, of course, be objections by those who have now already established a vested interest to beachhead, but the good of the Navy should prevail. Rickover. When we think that this is only 1969, this is only 50 years ago, it just shows that actually, A, the Human Factors as a profession has come a long way. It is largely mandated in UK defence. And a lot more people are getting on board with this this idea of user engagement, but uh, in all honesty, you know I, we still haven't completely got got rid of this approach. Um, on more than one occasion, I've uh, I've certainly hit a similar sort of attitude as to to what is expressed there. But it does show you how far how far we've come. Now, obviously, that is coming from a military perspective. So, what makes the military special? There are quite a few different elements that differ. Um, in the military perspective, I mean, not least of all, you know, they all wear uniform. They're either green, light blue or dark blue, or maybe variations in between. But there's slightly more to it in terms of the processes that, that the military use generally are are different. They're a lot more prescribed for good reason. The, the scale of the issues that, that are tackled, certainly from a human factors perspective, are as massive as they, they are small. And the, what I mean by that is... On one hand, you could be designing elements of, of a rifle or maybe a piece of comms equipment, which everybody will have, or a piece of clothing or a helmet. And you might have one design, but that's going to be repeated for everybody or the vast majority of, of the people. If you're designing a aircraft or part of an aircraft, then there might only be 70 or, or 100 of them or a couple of hundred. If you're designing a, a ship, then there might only be two, or th- two, three, four, five of them, and so actually the 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 scale of things can have, there can be a lot of things produced, or there can only be a few. But the scale of them individual pieces. So a ship is obviously a massive piece of equipment where there's a lot of issues to to deal with. So one project can be can be quite immense. The culture of the the military is very different. It is obviously a more autocratic organisation, and and from a user perspective, that that delivers our own own challenges. The, the behaviours you can expect out of military users and the military is different, but also actually somewhat easy to work with in some respects. There is a lot of banter that goes on as well, and there's an argument to say if you can't, can't take a joke, you shouldn't work in human factors in the defence industry. But a lot of the, a lot of the, the trick around working in, in the defence industry is understanding culture and behaviour gets you a long way down the track. But we also we can't forget what the military is about. Fundamentally, it's about developing um, lethality whilst making sure that you're keeping your guys safe. That can sometimes be a bit of a, a cold water moment for, for many people. So let's get us back to Agile. And the reason we, we get, we're going to get back to Agile is because about where it sits. Now, I, I've worked on a broad variety of projects, some small, some big. And in my experience that when you've got something that's either it's a small project, so 10, 20, 30K, maybe up to about 50K, uh, 50,000 pounds worth of, of project, Agile is strongly encouraged because they think you're going to get more value for money, it's, you've got more mobility, you can work, it's ideal for small teams, you can flex, you can be dynamic, all the, all the key buzzwords and, and it, it all works. 
But on a big project, so a million, multi-million pound project, it feels like we don't like Agile because it, there's a level of uncertainty. It's it's seen as harder to plan. In big projects, we like to see a nice Gantt chart, a nice linear waterfall Gantt chart with one task finishing, the next task starting and beautifully cascading into each other. Agile is, see, is seen as tough to manage because it is a different management and leadership style. And inherently, Agile is, is seen as, as more risky in big projects. But isn't this a bit ironic? I think it's worth, you know, we in a large-scale project, we have our beautiful Gantt charts. Projects inevitably, inevitably get delayed one way or another. And so we have a false sense of security when we see our beautiful Gantt chart move a bit to the right. It inhabits a new space, but I now think I now fully understand my project again because whilst my one task will have moved to the right a little bit and it's cascaded down beautifully and I've agreed a new end date with my client or whatever, actually the project hasn't delivered on time. You've moved it to the right, you can see it, it's beautiful, but it's still late or you've had to put more resource into it. And so there is a certain sense of a false sense of security behind the beautiful Gantt chart. It could be that actually if you fully embrace an agile approach, you might deliver the, the, the big project on time or you might deliver it within the resource that you've got available or you, at least you'd have a much better understanding of, of where you're at and why you're late. I think that, we, that all the advantages that we think that agile gives us in small projects could definitely be delivered in big projects. But also by the fact that we put agile into small projects, we, we throw in the buzzwords and say that we must be agile. We think we're going to get more for what we're going to do. I don't think that's necessarily the case. You're just getting it managed in a different way and you'll see it incrementally come along as opposed to in a linear fashion. So when we're developing safety critical systems, this is where agile is still very much in, it, in its infancy because the with agile, the idea is that you're developing stuff, you, you set a pace, a sprint. So that's that period of time where we're developing a, a, an increment or a, a piece of functionality is seen as maybe two to three weeks. Whereas with safety critical systems, we do need to be a bit more considered that because the ramifications of you getting it wrong are bigger and it could be as, you know, lives could be at stake. You need to be able to gather your evidence in an appropriate way. You need to be able to withstand an audit trail or have the audit trail there about how you got to do what you're doing. It's got to be backed off by standards. So there is an element of, of pre-work there to, to be done. Some people would suggest that actually this slows the agile process. However, I'm more of the belief it just shows how much preparation you need to do. Are you fit to be agile in, in this respect? Do you have all the basic stuff in place? Just because you're doing it by agile doesn't mean that you shouldn't have all the underpinning elements that you need. And in fact, when we are evidence gathering, just because you're having to gather more evidence doesn't mean that you're necessarily having to put in that more that much more effort. But you've got to have a real policy in place, effectively, about how you're going to gather your evidence, what it should be, and how it's wrapped up. Because you've got to be accountable for the decisions you make, and they've got to be auditable. But then one of the other fundamental things that this relies on is the ability to fail fast. The idea of failing fast is something that is possibly more common in, in the United States rather than it is in the UK. But it is that ability of empowering people to actually fail. And it kind of all rolls back to the idea of what I said earlier about allowing people to ask the stupid question. You've got to allow people to get things wrong. If you don't get things wrong, you don't know how close you could be to getting things right. You don't know where the boundaries are. But if you fundamentally also get, say, a long way into the project or you get, then you might realise, something might come along and you realise, actually, this isn't working. It, it, the technology that we're playing with it isn't mature enough or a requirement changes or whatever it is. 
and you've got to be you've got to have the ability to turn around and say right either this sprint so this one part of the project isn't working so stop or this it could be the case of actually hold on something else has changed this project isn't going in the right direction anymore we can stop we can you don't necessarily fail but you can stop and if you're say halfway through because of this modular approach you'll have taken this incremental approach you'll actually have artifacts to take away with you which from the traditional approach this horizontal sliced approach you might have only got as far far down as a bit of a prototype or whatever whereas with this you've actually got stuff to take away when agile works it works well and when it doesn't work, if you're if you f- decide to fail fast, at least you get something out of it. You're not walking away with absolutely nothing, and it doesn't feel like a complete waste of time. I'm going to sort of finish this off with looking at my what I consider my toolkit. As I said, right right from the top, the the pure view of this is Scrum, and there is some really good literature out there on Scrum methodologies. I'd recommend you go and look at Scrum.org as I guess that go-to place for for Scrum methodology. I guess what I've learned is I've tried to stick to pure Scrum techniques, but actually it's quite difficult to do, especially in an environment that that is still learning about it. And if you're working with people who don't necessarily understand or work work in that approach. So you've got to make Agile work for your project. The organizations you're working with have got to be bought into what you're doing. They might not be top to bottom bought in. The more top cover you can get so the more management buy-in different levels of management the better it is because you're not having to fight all the way but sometimes and i've had this on on a couple of occasions where you go and you want to do an agile approach not everybody's bought into it not everybody likes the idea but somebody gives you that little opening and and you grab it with both hands some of it is about proving that it will actually work i have had it where i've taken an opportunity proven that it will work and embedded it in that level of organization that, that that I was in and hopefully see 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 it grow it doesn't necessarily always work it isn't it isn't for everybody and actually part of that part of the skill in it is also maybe recognizing when it's not going to work dipping out slightly but that still doesn't mean you can't use agile tech basically agile techniques and agile approaches within more standard more standard more, uh, more standard life cycles but fundamentally, one, one of the best bits of adaption that I've done is you don't have to, don't stick to the terminology or to the Scrum or Agile terminology if it's going to threaten your threaten your, your, your customer or your client. People don't like change. Uh, we know that. We um, Unless you're slightly weird like I am who, th- who thrives on it. Fundamentally, people like to have that warm cocoon of, of familiarity. So can you take your Agile techniques and couch them in a language that is less threatening and of course really what i'm talking about is can you couch it in a language that they already use so if you're in agile you might want to talk about backlogs and minimal minimal viable products and 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 things like that but maybe rather than talking about backlogs we can be talking about requirements rather than talking about minimal viable products we could be talking about phase one releases we could be talking about prototypes rather than talk. We could talk about the, the elements of things where we do some lessons learned or lessons identified sessions rather than a retrospective. These are all terms that are, that are part of the Agile and Scrum toolkit. But if you actually p- turn them into what the what, what your client or what, what your partnership is, is more used to, then they'll actually end up doing it. And you almost come to the end of it and then go, surprise, you've actually been doing Agile all this time and show them how maybe what you've done maps onto onto the overall piece. Sometimes people can call agile engineering by post-it because really you're you're looking at um, taking 
bite-sized chunks and they generally all nicely fit on a post-it and you'll see pictures of walls covered in post-its on and different parts of the parts of the and different parts of the project and really what you're seeing on the wall there is is a scrum board i generally have five different stages in my in my scrum board so working from left to right i would start off with my requirements section for me which for those people who are really into the agile and scrum is really your backlog and then I've got the three different steps of, you know, I'm going to design an element. Um, so if I know what requirement is, I'm going to design it. It's going to be implemented in software, hardware, whatever the whatever the, the thing is about. Then it's going to get verified. Now, this is not verification in a verification validation sense for those software, uh, those systems engineers amongst you. This is merely a, a verification of, does this piece of whatever it is I produced actually fulfill my requirement? And that's by people around the table. It's not externally tested. If it's verified that you're happy with it, it then goes into the last column, which is complete. So you actually have a view of, of the work that you've done. But at the end of the day, that can all get, get all captured and, and written up. But it's also important for the pace of this that you you don't get hung up. And it's really easy to go down rabbit holes and, and that type of thing. So there's two other boxes that I tend to use on my, on my scrum board. Or it could be a different part of the wall, or it could be a separate whiteboard or anything. And those two bo- boxes are assumptions and queries. So the assumptions element is if you get hung up on something, it might be colour or a number or um, how, how something works. You don't necessarily have to go back and say, well, I'm not sure how it works, therefore everything stops, or I'm not sure what colour this should be, therefore everything stops. If you can just assume, right, I think it's going to be red, right, let's make it red for now, that means we can carry on with the rest of what I'm trying to do. As long as I've documented what it is, if it happens to be a, a different colour or it's a different aspect, then you can come back and slot that in. But basically, that that the judicious use of assumptions allows you to, to keep a certain level of pace and doesn't stop you from getting stuck when you don't need to. But also queries. It's really useful to know what you don't know. And if there's something that is there that, that is, is going to hang you up and you can't assume it away then you've got to put it down as a query. Ideally, you'd send somebody off to go and find out the answer because then you can then you can feed that back in. But some things just might not get solved by that point and it, it might, need, might need some bigger work. But again, any questions that come up, if you don't know, then it goes back to the no stupid questions, chuck it in there and you, you've definitely got a record of it. And so fundamentally, that's how I lay out a scrum board. Now, this can go on a, a sheet of paper that's A4, A3, A2, A0 is, is one of the ones I use at the moment. Or you can get some the sticky back plastic that goes right the length down a wall, or you can use whiteboards. It doesn't really matter. What you do see is just this standard is have a standard way of working where you see stuff progress from a requirement or a backlog idea all the way through to being complete. The other tool that I tend to use as well on on a similar process is what they call Kanban. And really, Kanban is is that similar idea of having things on post-its or notes or whatever but it tracks it tracks you through the entire project so if you've got a system if you've got a system of systems approach a, a server approach so you've got a number of systems you're working with you know which systems you've completed you maybe know what part of the project you've completed overall and this is particularly useful if you're working in large systems or you've got multiple teams or you've got a larger hierarchy because you put it up on the wall, really everybody knows where you're at. You're not hiding anything. There's no, uh, there's nothing there to to hide away in a, in a plan somewhere. It's, everybody can see up on the wall at a glance where you're at, what you're doing, what progress you've made, and and there's a level of honesty there because I use post-its generally again on on the Kanban board 
because things can move forward and back. You can move forward things forward into a design phase, or they and it, it might fail and it, it goes back and it generates a conversation. Or why has that gone back? And you can have an honest discussion about it. It it shows a level of um, openness all the way up to senior management, so the people above you, as well as the people right down on the shop floor. Anybody who's walking by can see see what you're doing. For me, that help, really helps with morale and motivation. People get a, a sense of well-being, a sense of fulfillment when they see that they've completed stuff and stuff's gone from immature all the way through to complete. Especially, again, on these large systems where you don't know that they're going to end. This gives you small milestones to work through. So I hope that that has given you um, my sort of views on the use of Agile, Agile, Scrum, them sort of methodologies. The... Some of the challenges that we face of doing human factors in, in a defense environment and what Agile HF means. As always, please do uh, leave me a comment and, and any questions you might have. And um, I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.